0: Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's attempts to study for his comprehensive exam. And today, I'm feeling really cozy. It is the middle of winter, and even in California, we have winter. It's the time when you wrap yourselves up in scarves, put on sweaters, go outside, drink soup and hot chocolate if you aren't doing a January sugar fast. And right now I am in my lovely warm home and thankfully all of the curtains are drawn against the cold and I am wearing a big fuzzy bathrobe. So I'm thinking about being cozy. And there's nothing more cozy to think about than that warm and troubling thing of the Victorian home. Coziness is on the rise right now. Of course, uh, this thing called hygge, uh, it's Danish for cozy and it's now this publishing sensation. Do a Google search for it and you'll find a lot of crazy stuff. I'm just doing it right now. And Google says that four hours ago, L.com published a article called, What is Hugga? Which of these everyday items is Hugga? The next one says business ideas for 2017, Huga showing some cozy, cozy boots. So coziness is on the rise. Uh, but I think that the Victorians might have been cozier than the Danish. In the 1800s, for instance, the word comforter changed its meaning. Before 1800, the word comforter meant Jesus, the person who comforted you. After 1800, the word comforter meant a scarf. There's actually so many really, really, really great facts for this big change in the Victorians' attitude towards comfort that I couldn't choose just one. Here's one of my favorites. Just as the Germans live in Germany, the Romans live in Rome, the Turkeys live in Turkey, but the English live at home. You see, the idea of the Victorian home and this lovely, comfortable, cozy place is raised up to the level of national definition, and we're going to talk about what that means today. The big thing that we're going to talk about today is how this cozy, lovely, warm, well-decorated, well-ordered home was super-gendered. Technically, this is called the separation of the spheres. The idea is is that the men go out and work in this kind of difficult capitalist environment where morality is kind of put on hold and they sweat and they struggle and they have to think and then they go home. And home is this separate little bubble of light and sweetness and well-ordered stuff and big piping hot meals and children and women. Women were supposed to manage this beautiful, well-ordered house. So this is the separation of the spheres. Men in the market, women at home. Women's big job was managing the house. Um, One of the the publications that shows this is the essential Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, published in 1856. Now, one of the biggest things that Mrs. Beaton talks about is cooking. In fact, the book has, I think, probably thousands of recipes. It has recipes for brown sauce, tongue, beef tea, almond cake. Uh, It has eight different entries for asparagus, including boiled asparagus, island asparagus, Medicinal uses of asparagus, asparagus and peas, asparagus pudding, asparagus sauce, and asparagus soup. By looking at these entries, we can see some of the concerns that middle-class women had about cooking. In each entry, it talks about how much time it takes to cook the dishes, the cost of the dishes, when the dishes are in season, how to buy the ingredients for the dishes, and all of these things the middle-class wife was responsible for. And we can see another one of the many responsibilities women had by looking at a chapter heading of Mrs. Beaton, Cooking for Invalids, because it was women, by and large, who were in charge of taking care of sick people and nursing them to health. Of course, doctors, mostly male, would diagnose the sickness, and pharmacists, mostly male, would compound and dispense the drugs. But it was the responsibility of women to take care of the sick person day after day after day. We have a familiar image of this, Florence Nightingale, the ultimate nurse. If you wanna get a sense of just how much household medicine women were responsible for, you could take a look in their medical goods. They would have lancets for piercing boils and warts, they'd have tweezers to take out uh, ugly bits of splinters, and they'd even have curved needles to sew up wounds. The curved needle that the women would have in her, her little nurse's pouch brings us to another responsibility of women, and that's sewing. As we heard in our previous episode, women knew how to sew really, really well. And these were not just samplers, not just decorative pillows with Home Sweet Home written on them or some Bible verse. Women, before the advent of ready-made clothing, were responsible for the bulk of clothing production in the house. They'd go out and buy textiles, but then they'd have patterns that would show them how to sew them into the clothes that most of the people would wear. This is why the advent of ready-made clothes were so great for women, because it would take away the massive responsibility they had for sewing clothes, often for growing children. And it was actually children's clothes that were one of the first pieces of ready-made clothes out in the market. You have an image of this in your head. The weird Little Lord Flauntlory suits and the sailor suits that you imagine Victorian children to wear were made like that because they were the first ready-made clothing craze. And the sewing of clothes brings us to probably one of the worst responsibilities that the Victorian woman had, and that is laundry. Victorian soap did not work in cold water, and they did not have water heaters. So to do the laundry in Victorian times, you needed to heat up water this was not as easy as it sounds because there was usually only one source of fire in the house to that you could use to heat water and that was in the kitchen so you needed to first to plan your whole entire house's day so that the kitchen could be occupied with gigantic boiling tubs of water for the laundry and after that it was hard backbreaking messy wet sudsy labor you had to physically agitate the clothes up against one another so that the dirt would, 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 would fall off, and that took a lot of elbow grease. And this is not even counting the special craziness that you had to attend to when it comes to starching and bleaching all of that weird Victorian garment. It took, you know, scientific knowledge to know how to make those collars stand as stiff as they did. And that's why a middle-class home that could afford to would send out its laundry to a laundress. Laundry was actually one of the biggest categories of female employment in the Victorian era. In the 1861 census, nearly 170,000 people were professional laundry workers. Whereas most female laborers were unmarried, laundry workers were by and large married. This tells us something about the place that laundry working had in a woman's life. Taking in laundry was something that people did when they didn't have enough money to make ends meet. Widows, who no longer had the male brand winner would sometimes be given the Victorian laundry implements a ringer, and a mangle to say, basically, go off and take in laundry for your main job. There's a quote from the Pall Mall Gazette from 1894. Widows and washing, misery and mangles seem somehow always to be connected. And these chores don't include all the other chores that Victorian women had to do. Dressing the children, taking out the chamber pots in the morning, and of course, making babies. In 1874, the average Victorian home had something like six kids in it. One in five of these homes had more than ten kids in it, so just think of how busy these women were making kids, bearing kids, breastfeeding kids. So when we think of the Victorian angel of the home, don't don't imagine her sitting there playing the piano or sewing doilies or doing any of that stuff. Imagine her working in the home and working really, really hard. So let's turn to men. And men did have work in the home. When we think of the coziness of the Victorian house, we often think of all the things in it. We think of the overstuffed chairs and the china and the wallpaper and the furniture upon furniture upon furniture and the the decorative plates. And do you know who was responsible for all this? What was the men? Men in the Victorian home were in charge of interior decorating. There's kind of a technical reason for this, actually. Women were not allowed to have their own property or to assume their own debt during the Victorian era, which meant that they were not very good shoppers of the big, expensive goods that had to furnish a new home. And it was only in the 1890s that men started to step away from interior decorating. This could have been because of the move towards the suburbs, which meant that men spent even less of their days at home. It could be because of the aestheticization of the home, the transformation of home into this work of art that was the purview of specialized, sensitive souls, and, and perhaps it was the women themselves pushing men out so that they would have a sphere of their own. There's actually a link between interior decoration and the suffrage movement. Agnes Garrett, one of the three famous Garrett sisters, was a very successful interior decorator. Emmeline Pankhurst, the matriarch of the Pankhurst clan, was an unsuccessful interior decorator. Now, when we think of this gender division of labor in the home, we have to remember that this wasn't actually very good for the men, either. Men's primary identity was the breadwinner of the house. But this meant that when unemployment happened, or even in working-class families when teenage sons started to outearn their dads, the male identity of the breadwinner kind of fell apart. In the hunger marches, for instance, and these were, were, were big protests where unemployed men marched through the country to demonstrate against their persistent unemployment, men emphasized how unemployment denigrated their masculine identities. Here's a quote from a, a hunger marcher in 1905. Many of us are old soldiers and took an active part in the late South African war. We are reduced to the extreme of misery want unable to fulfill one of our first duties of husbands and fathers, namely to provide food for our wives and children. Furthermore, this division of labor meant that fathers were sometimes strangers in their own homes. Their relationships with their children were mediated more and more through mothers. There's a joke that the reverend C. bine Baring Gold, who was the father of 16, was at a Christmas party, and he was speaking to a young child, and he said, and whose little girl are you? And it turned out, that it was his. Men were seated symbolically at the head of the table, removed from the rest of the family. They were pictured in their dens and their libraries, distant, odd, tired, alone, living one half in the world of work and struggle and capitalism and one foot in the comfort of their home. So how do we think about this gender division of labor in the home historically? One of the things I wanna emphasize is that we shouldn't discount the coziness of the Victorian home. People liked their homes and they really enjoyed decorating them and cooking in them, keeping them clean, and hanging out in them. But we also have to recognize the downsides. One of those was the decline of public life, the inward turn of the Victorians. As men were strangers in the home, so too were women strangers in public. There were troubles when women started to go out to the big fashionable department stores to shop because It was thought that only prostitutes were out in the street in the day. In a cartoon from 1865, a woman is handed a tract from an uptight clergyman, and the tract is trying to encourage her to give up prostitution. You're mistaken, the woman says. I'm not a social evil. I'm only waiting for the bus. And finally, we have to imagine why all this changed. Why did this huge gender division of labor happen? And for that, I have to point to the ultimate cause of all of Victorian history, and I'm joking there, only half joking, the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution pushed production out of the home. It pushed people to work in factories and offices. It made work a separate sphere. Men became about production women became about reproduction. So in all of this story, as we imagine the beautiful, chintzy, cozy, warm Victorian home, let's also picture a factory out the window. So thanks very much for joining me today on this special cozy edition of Making of Historian. I have to thank, as always, Jonathan Lear, whose wonderful music both introduces and closes my podcast. And I also have to thank Duncan Barton, who made our fantastic logo. If you like the podcast, rate it and review it, and also share it on social media. iTunes, for some reason, finds it really great if a bunch of people review a podcast at once. If you want show notes, or to get links to Duncan Barton or to Jonathan Lear, check out my website at historian.live. Thanks, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.